We're going to delve into cannabis market research here on Grassroots Marketing on CannabisRadio.com. And joining me right now, when I go to a story that was that was uh, featuring our next guest, they put the point about how she is a renowned market search research expert and consultant specializing in consumer insights and data-driven decision-making, 20 years experience plus in the field, excelling in designing and ex- executing cost-effective solutions, enhancing various aspects of business from product development to marketing and brand optimization. I'm here with the founder of Fortis Consulting, Lara Fortis. Thank you for being on with us. Thank you. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So we don't get a whole lot of talk about market research and where there are things coming from it, but I was actually quite curious as to where you put this together. And when I look at some of the things that you talk about, one of the stories that I was actually calling quite a bit of your LinkedIn because you put a, you know, when you do post it, they are pretty poignant and you make a point about just in one story about elevating your cannabis brand, about doing an at-home experience. So when you want to do just product testing, delving into the world of at-home cannabis experience testing. So your cutting-edge cannabis creation embraced by eager consumers, ready to explore the effects of comfort in their own space. And you want to introduce the power of at-home experience testing. So having a focus group in your consumers' living rooms. Same thing as you would have focus groups that would be you know, professionally done in some facility, you know, say if it's for a restaurant or for any kind of product there is, product testing. Talk to me about the idea that you wanted to put out there about having this private focus group and also being able to go ahead and find the right test subjects that will be unbiased. Okay. Well, yeah, it's been, it's been very interesting because of my experience in market research. I've seen research executed in a lot of different ways, but cannabis presents an even more complicated scenario than, than does alcohol. So if, you know, typically if you're going to experiment with dish soap or kids granola bars or whatever, no, you know, it's logistically challenging, obviously, to get it to those consumers, but it's an iota of what it takes to get cannabis into the hands, you know, legally, safely, effectively into the hands of consumers. Um, the impetus for this is because we can't do what's called in, in market research, see, um, you know, central location testing or CLT testing. So I had to come up with how do I creatively solve for this? Um, most cannabis brands test and they use employees and friends and families, which, you know, makes sense, but there's such inherent bias to that. Um, so I wanted to figure out, well, how can I get objective consumer feedback? And what I've found is that using a combination of central, um, of, uh, what's called IHUTS, which stands for in-home use test, um, methodology. So getting it to the consumers, either through delivery mechanisms or, um, picking it up at dispensaries. It's called penny, you know, like you penny up basically, you know, they go to dispensaries to pick up what they're going to sample. And then, um, I have, questions that I ask them, not diaries per se, but more like simple survey questions. And then we come together in either a virtual in-depth interview or a virtual focus group so that we can discuss what we what we tried. So we have both quantitative, which is the survey part of it, qualitative, which is the, the whys and the probing behind the reasons for the answers. And it enables me to give clients 
objective data about their product without the inherent bias of employees or friends and families of employees. So a few weeks ago, we had various guests either. Well, actually, we had a couple of guests here on grassroots marketing that were pre-roll manufacturers. Mm-hmm. And talking about the idea of the Costco model. So when you want to be able to go and find out what products are best served and be able to go ahead and get a company to be able to go ahead and put aside enough inventory for sampling. That's the other part I would imagine would be an issue too, doing just the at-home experience testing. Of course, there's samples that are put out strategically to different companies. I can tell you that with Cannabis Radio, my management team has a boatload of samples that they get from companies because they want you know, real unbiased feedback mm-hmm. on what they get. And they know with us that if we're, if it helps to go and get them more press, a little more publicity, they'll do that for us. We had that more than enough. What do you think about the idea of instituting the Costco model and the dispensaries to see if they would be more effective and if there's, you know, would kind of do better than having a bud tender, just take them, you know, take them at their word. Well, it's, on a state-by-state basis, but I at least know in states like uh, California and Colorado, and it might be universal, that you can't legally consume cannabis on a cannabis dispensary property. So you couldn't do a Costco model um, legally, as far as I know, like it would be really cool, but you could ostensibly do something like that in a cannabis lounge or a place that was zoned for, um, you know, consumption. And obviously that, the, you know, an edible scenario is going to be different than a, you know, pre-roll or blunt or, you know, joint scenario. Um, but it would be really cool. And I've been to events where they do just that. They do that Costco model, like, oh, take a hit of this, take a dab of that. And as you, you know, as, as you may know from my reputation, I'm actually not a personally a big consumer. I come at it from a very objective point of view. It just happens to be that I have an enthusiasm and an expertise in controversial, stigmatized and highly regulated product trial categories. So I'm I'm used to coming up with, well, how am I going to do this legally, safely, and cost effectively? Right now, coming from your background and what you brought yourself into the space now, prior to that, is there anything from your background that you want to say that, that, that you can tell me that from your experience that you able to go ahead and apply into the cannabis industry based on what you've done previous before mm-hmm. you entered the industry itself? So my original, my first 15 years in market research was with um, market research agencies that specialized in helping Fortune 500 companies. Mm -hmm. So what I'd say that one of the advantages coming into cannabis is that I had a sophistication of knowing what tools were out there enough to question what is conventionally been being done in the industry. So for instance, Currently, if you ask a cannabis company, oh, what kind of, what do you do for market research? They'll say, oh, well, we have headset or we have retail data collection or we have whatever. But that's just like a small component of market research. So sometimes uh, companies 
based on my experience, I know that they have a very limited sense of the potential ROI of market research and what's out there. And there's just some naivete, you know, so for instance, if um, I went into a liquor store and I bought a keg, you wouldn't assume that I was going to drink that keg alone, you know, that I was, that you wouldn't link that to my presumed alcohol consumption for a week. However, we all know anecdotally or, or from personal experience that we either buy stuff at legal dispensaries for other people or we're the recipient of things that other people bought for us. Right. And the lack of acknowledgement of that phenomenon, that very widespread phenomenon, leads to skewing your retail data. So if I go into a dispensary and I'm shopping for a product for a friend or a family member or a partner, my demographics are going to be conflated over the actual end users demographics. So you get this sense that like, that because of these sort of invisible shopper uh shopper types that, you know, that are having their spouse or their, Mm -hmm. you know, it's very typical spouse, friend, family member shop for them. They're not being counted as consumers. So in, in cannabis, what I see a lot is people say like, oh, based on this retail data, X percent are doing X thing, but really it's really only X percent of purchasers may be doing this thing because you don't know who the end consumer is, you know? So, you know, like, I mean, there's some things that are sort of giveaways, you know, like, you know, maybe feminine, you know, female oriented products for sexual health or men products. Um, But for the most part, 99%, you're not going to know who the end consumer for what was purchased is. So it, it's an industry problem because it underrepresents how much more widespread cannabis usage is than just those who are going into a legal dispensary. So it undercounts the number of people consuming and it overestimates how much those actual, you know, those, those consumers who are really purchasers are consuming because they don't know that it's going to another person or they don't acknowledge that it's going to another person. I mean, a bit of logic if you try to really put yourself, your mind to it. One of the areas you also make a mention of when you talk to mycannabis.com, when they asked about your work at consulting, you know, in this space now with your own consulting firm, that there was the idea that you were that director of operations for a large market research company, but that market research should not be solely available to Fortune 500 companies. And there are ways to scale it so that companies of all stages can access market research. But now how many smaller companies, especially the craft cannabis companies you have, there are quite a few competing with the MSOs. How many of them are actually paying attention to market research? Well, a lot of them, a lot of small businesses and startups don't pay attention to it with the exception if they're um, very well capitalized or they're part of a venture capital or other investment uh, group. So my mission, you know, my my raison d'etre was to make um, market research available to companies of all sizes and stages who may think they can't afford it. Um, in doing so, that has not been, you know, <laughs> the the best from a financial point of view, but from an ethical and and 
attitudinal point of view, I felt it was really important um, to make sure that they that that got addressed. Um, that being said, most of my clients are usually company cannabis companies who are either startups seeking investment, so they're fairly ca- well capitalized, or they're existing companies who are looking to launch a new product line or product and want to make sure it's going to be successful um, and, you know, before they take it to market. So most of my mm-hmm. in, my work is with the innovation team or the marketing team, but typically in product innovation. But that does make two different scenarios. So the fact that you came from Fortune 500 companies that were looking at and following intently the market research, there are people that are of top-level executives that have come in from Fortune 500 companies that just – they think, well, we're going to bring that corporate mindset in. We're going to incorporate market research. We have these firms. We can find them. They're going to come into the place, or we find Laura. That'll go ahead and bring in that cannabis market research into the space. But then again, it's also interesting where you say that for those that are looking for seed money, for VC money, that they need to be able to communicate effectively and be able to pitch for money that they need to be able to continue to fund their, their venture. They need to go ahead and have that market research as well. Yeah, it is, it is a little bit of a chicken and egg scenario because in order to get funding, you do need to have um, some market research, some data, you know, it, you know, they're not going to want it all to be speculative and, um, you know, entrepreneurs and human beings, we notoriously overestimate how cool our ideas are and how much people are going to be willing to pay for them and how many people um, but in reality, usually the target audience, the potential target audience is is smaller and potentially much different than what people have in mind. So like I think of the example of a relatively small company that had a vacuum sealed um, apparatus to store weed and it was designed for can of sewers, which sounds legit like who uh, who's going to care more about their weed than the can of sewers but when we tested it out on a wider variety of people and and luckily this person was open-minded so they weren't just attached to going over their presumed target audience uh it was actually parents who don't want their kids to know that there's weed in the house that presented a much more robust and unexpected target audience opportunity than canosaurs. Because canosaurs, when you think about it, a lot of them already have workarounds. Whereas parents who don't want their kids to know there's weed in the house, like that, that really taps into your core values. And so it's a much more compelling problem to solve and pay money for than you know, upgrading your mason jar and your your uh, bovida or other packets to maintain your weed. Now, one of the other areas you make mention of, then uh, the same story from my cannabis that I'm featuring from. In 2018, you expanded into the areas of CBD, THC, and cannabis-related products. Now, doing the research here and creating, you know, standard, tangible information for if it is for investors or if it is for consumers or if it is for business owners alike, one of the areas you have to think about when it comes to that you worked with hemp-based CBDs, there was a hemp delivery concept project you mentioned uh, initially. And working with startup clients, it was really a fun opportunity you mentioned. But one of the things is that there's also the stigma, not necessarily with, of course, with cannabis, but there is with the hemp CBD industry with the level of products. And, you know, they might have 
these inflated dosages per milligram of different products and the effectiveness of them and the areas of you know there's a certificate of of authenticity or what you know the, the seals of uh, certification and the lab testing results that are third-party lab tested all these different things that are brought aboard talk about the issues that you might have with companies that might have these kind of products and they're trying to go and present market research that supplements what they're doing with their product when they're going to have an issue where some people are already going to be kind of weary because of how many CBD products are out there saturating the market. Yeah, it's, it is challenging. I mean, there there's CBD for me, like from a logistics point of view is easier than cannabis because you can mail it and ship it and it, you know, so it doesn't present as many challenges as does, um, as does cannabis. That being said, I'm a big believer in differentiation as an important driver of product success. So usually people aren't going to pay for you to build a better mouse mouse trap. There's going to be having to be something that's distinct that not only solves for what the entrepreneur or the, the business thinks is an unmet need or an unmet want, but one people are willing mm. to pay money for. So one of the challenges I find in, um, especially in startups or new businesses is no one thinks their baby is ugly. <laughs> so everyone thinks that what they have is really important and special and better and, you know, it's for everyone. And the fact is in market research, um, that tends to be um, shot down pretty quickly, you know, oftentimes, whether it's competitive analysis, or, um, you know, looking at like the meaningfulness of the quote improvements, that against the incumbent brand loyalty is a tough sell. And uh, so I sometimes am the bearer of bad news that I think that a product isn't going to have enough potential to compete on the competitive landscape unless it differentiates itself in a way that's palpable and meaningful to consumers. Getting back to the original point when it came to in-home testing is that a common problem you may mention with cannabis companies is reliance on anecdotal feedback from employees rather than the consumers themselves. So as you were talking about the idea of in-home testing, you know, you were working with countless cannabis companies developing legal and safe ways to conduct product testing with the general public. Can you give me an idea of what some of those ideas are that maybe some of our listeners, you know, that would have businesses out there? What are some of the options that they could do? In terms of testing or you Correct. mean, inter- okay. Um, well, there's, there's different, there's kind of different types of testing. I mean, I've, I've conducted testing in the back of RVs. I've conducted it in people's homes. I've conducted it in cannabis lounges in addition to, um, you know, more traditional, like where you send it and they kind of do it themselves. And then you circle back with a survey um, and a focus group. And there's what I try to do is, is I consider myself like a, a research methodology matchmaker. Um, I take a, the philosophy of like Stephen Covey's seven habits of successful people. Like I begin with the end in mind, like, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to increase revenue? Are they trying to see if this could replace an existing product? Are they like, what's their end goal? And then reverse engineer a way to get there. And sometimes that's in-home use testing. Sometimes that's something a little bit outside the box. 
Um, sometimes that's going and being in person, which um, if I go there, obviously it's fine. You know, it's logistically a little challenging, but I have done it where I've gone and interviewed, you know, a couple dozen people in a city by going house to house. And on the other hand, if we want to get people together in a setting, I always make sure to arrange for Ubers there and back, regardless of whether it's sativa, indica, hybrid, doesn't matter. I always make sure that human safety is the most paramount to me. Um, so it really depends. Some some companies really like focus groups, in-person focus groups, which is doable, but there's also a lot of ways to save money by doing virtual focus groups. But if we're doing like in, in-person product testing where someone's smoking, you know, an infused pre-roll or um, a blunt or trying something where I need to like see it in person and walk them mm-hmm. through it, then it's in person. And logistically, even though I try to be really scrappy, sometimes that adds up and becomes something on a wish list for a company, but not something they can do right off the bat. I would imagine it's very tough to do it for smokables, vapes, or dabs, but I would imagine if you're doing consumables or yeah, ingestibles, Mm-hmm. always it's, looking like when i see like you know like a restaurant I always see like what was it when i like a mcdonald's they'll have like some big test kitchen and they'll have all these blind controlled trials where they'll have like a sandwich you know presented underneath some kind of a partition and then the test subject is going to try the sandwich and they're going to grade it for taste for quality for all these different things is that something that's also that can be done here where the test subject doesn't know what the product is. They're just going to try to test a product without seeing a brand or a label or anything like that at all. Yes. And, and that, that is doable. Um, sometimes depending on what the goals are, like for, um, for edibles um, or topicals or anything that's non-combustible, right. it's theoretically a lot easier. The challenge with edibles is they're, slow and unpredictable onset. So if I'm just measuring for taste and texture and smell, then that's cool. But if I want to measure for um, onset time, offset time, those kind of things, that's when I have to move to an in-home use test because no one's going to want to spend six Mm -hmm. hours with me. I mean, maybe, but like that wouldn't be cost effective. <laughs> well, yeah, you have, the, you, have good, you have to scale the entourage effect. You have, you, have to see, yeah. you have to be there for when they get to the high and they come off of it. Exactly. Yes. That, that so if it's, tough. yeah, if it's like a, a fast acting edible, then there are creative ways to do that. But that's why, like, if it's a sleep edible or a product that's oriented towards a certain um, effect goal or wants to make a certain claim, you know, like, I, I, you know, I can't, yeah, like I, I, I can't be there. So then I have to rely on asking the kind of questions when or, they I mean, take it, it, when they feel it hit, how they feel. You do like morning. a diary, I guess. Cause I mean, the only thing I yeah. also could think of is if you have them do a diary and personally just document and journal what they get from the experience. Now, would there be a point where you would convince companies that they should create this kind of a paid research we've seen out there with a lot of companies. They'll just do, you know, they'll, they'll pay a subject to go ahead and go through the testing of trying edibles or trying consumables or trying anything that might be smokable, available or dabable. 
Yeah, I always pay respondents. Um, a lot of times companies will say like, well, well, we're giving them product or we'll give them swag or we'll give them yeah. like a discount code. But then it's not truly researched because it's what's called a self-selected sample. So it's the only the kind of people who would do it for free, which are not usually representative of your target audience. Mm -hmm. um, people who already know the brand enough to care about swag. You know, like there's just a lot of problems with that. So I do zero uncompensated research. I don't believe in it. I don't believe it produces um, data that from which you can extrapolate to a larger target audience. So even if it's an hour and you're trying an edible and whatever, you know, you're pretty much in any kind of study I do, there's going to be 50 or a hundred dollars cash in addition to whatever product they try. Now, sometimes like with an in-home use test, you obviously keep the product. Other times when it's prototypes and very much under scrutiny, we have to do it in person. So I have to pay people more to come out and talk to me than I would if they were just doing it in the comfort mm -hmm. of their own home. But I'll, I'll never ask someone to do something for free because I know it'll skew the type of people that are willing to participate. So finally, while you're doing this website is fortisconsulting.com, F-O-R-D-I-S consulting.com. Again, F-O-R-D-I-S, consulting.com. Laura, take a, take a minute to talk to our listeners and those that are listening in that, that are looking to find a way to get more investment, looking to go ahead and find a way to get more product out there, create the supply and demand that works in their favor. Because a lot oh. of listeners, I'm pretty sure, will say, this is a pretty, there's an investment I have to put into market research and for what we're looking to do here based on how much effort they want to put into it. If you can take a minute to go and talk to our listeners about why the investment is worthwhile. Well, I'd say that the investment is worthwhile, uh, you know, for a plethora of different reasons, not the least of which is you're making decisions that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars usually. Mm -hmm. And um, market research is a small percentage to pay to know that you're getting some directional consumer feedback before launching into spending hundreds of thousands of dollars or in, in the case of a startup, quitting your full-time job, spending your life savings um, because you, you know, what you think in your head may or may not be what's really happening. And especially if there's multiple people involved, I've seen some really strained partnerships and friendships because they've been going with a gut feeling or a hunch but they're not aligned on the gut feeling and hunch. And so they go in a direction and they don't see the revenue results that they want. And then they're pointing their fingers at the person who made the ultimate decision. Mm -hmm. So from a financial and psychological um, point of view, it just makes sense to have objective data before launching into a big investment of any kind. And Market research, you know, people think, you know, like, oh, that's for like Procter and Gamble or something. Right. I mean, market research can cost anywhere from five to seven thousand dollars up, you know, like depending on the extent of your research. I've had, you know, mm -hmm. it, it could cost six thousand dollars. It could cost sixty thousand dollars. But like doing basic market research doesn't have to be expensive. 
And sometimes you get value and insights that save you so much money and grief and stress in the long term and second guessing yourself, which I know is a, what a lot of people do. The decision makers, you know, like, you know, what should I do? Should I go this way with, the, you know, this this product formulation? Should I go that way or in terms of marketing? And it just gives a lot of peace of mind and someone to point to, you know, like, hey, this is this is not what I'm saying. This is what consumers are saying. And so we're going to make a decision based on consumers, not based on our biased and sometimes myopic frame of mind going into a product launch. All right. Thank you again for being on with us. I'm in here with Lara Fortis, for, founder of Fortis Consulting. Thank you again for being on with us. Really appreciate you taking time out. It was delightful speaking with you. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to chat today.